The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Mike. And I am Jay. On this week's episode of Film Jitsu, it's Halloween time. Jason, the time of the year that I circle on my calendar, pretty much that and your birthday are the two things. <laughs> but you know that I like to go big for the Halloween season, and that's what we're going to do. I know in our last episode, we promised maybe we'd have another film coming up this week. We'll get to that eventually, but it's October. We're going to do it right. We're going to do the <laughs> Halloween thing. And we are kicking it off this week with the movie uh, I decided you would have to watch. Because why would you watch it on your own otherwise? <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about 13 Ghosts from the year of our Lord, I don't even know, directed by Steve Beck. Yeah, what is this, like 90? Oh, no, this was 2001. That's when this was, yeah. And that's exactly why I picked the movie for this week's episode, because <laughs> it's a time of, uh, of cinema history that maybe wasn't super kind to... Horror. We're talking things like <laughs> The Haunting, those big budget showy horror movies. Yeah. I know that yeah. that's something that you hate, and that's why I wanted to give it to you. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and do our bottom five ghosts, because I'm nothing if not thinking outside the box there. And we'll give you some staff <laughs> picks, and then you will reveal what I have to watch for our next Halloween episode. Indeed. But before we do all that, let's go ahead and roll the trailer for 13 ghosts. There are ghosts around us all the time. Most of them, they can't hurt us. Most of them don't even want to hurt us. But there are exceptions. Is it bad tonight? Oh, bad is my professional opinion. We should get the hell out of here. Now. I represent the estate of your Uncle Cyrus. We have an Uncle Cyrus? Cyrus recorded this message six weeks ago. He asked it to be played for you in the event of his death. Arthur, I've instructed my lawyer to deliver my last will and testament. A key? A key to what? A key to your new house. This house is the fruit of my life's work. Oh, my God. It is a one-of-a-kind home. It's marvelous, isn't it? Wow. Arthur, we've got some papers to sign in the library. After that, I would love to take you and the family around the tour of the house. This place is awesome! All right, now I know I'm dreaming. Well, your uncle was quite a collector of many things. So, Jay, I made you watch 13 Ghosts, like I said, because it's kind of a, a cesspool period. In big Hollywood horror. Matthew Lillard is here. So, I mean, it's clearly going to be something that is uh, going to produce a reaction. Yeah. We're hot off the heels of the Scream franchise. Matthew Lillard was and kind of still is a big deal in horror circles. So, hey, why not? Sure. And look, F. Murray Abraham, right? We got a real actor in this movie. <laughs> Nothing screams horror more than F. Murray Abraham. <laughs> Salieri is in the house. Like, come on. Yep. So a movie with some, uh, some real legit actors, some not mm -hmm. so much legit actors, and a lot of questionable special effects. But 
I think the thing that maybe is worth talking about and was an unintended consideration for me is that, of course, this is a remake of a William Castle movie. Something that mm-hmm. wasn't really a part of my, my consideration when I picked it, but it seems impossible for us to not talk about that. I guess what I want to know is 13 Ghosts. Could have been 12. That would, I, I want to call this movie, I want to just get the dad joke out of the way. I've been thinking about this movie as Creeper by the Dozen for a week. <laughs> so so that's, that's a terrible joke. Well, it would have made more sense. That actually makes more sense because there are only 12 ghosts in this movie. So it actually works far better. 13 Ghosts is a misnomer right from the get-go. Creeper by the Dozen would have been a much better title. Not only that, I think they wouldn't be able to do the 13. You know, like Uh 7 did 7 with the the number 7 as the V? Well, 13 Ghosts. That probably should have been the bottom 5 list for this episode, right? It's like bottom 5 titles with numerals. Yeah. Well, this one did 13 and it has the T and the E replaced by a one and a three in the title and in some places that's the official stylized title for the movie i just found that idiotic right from the get-go so right (laughs) even before breaching the movie i'm i'm immediately turned off i don't know if you know anything about the director of this one this guy named steve beck he's got a like a visual effects background which i guess wouldn't be terribly surprising if you watch Uh this thing uh, he had worked with Industrial Light Magic for years, and guess what one of his credits are? Do tell. The Abyss. No way. Yeah, man. He was like head of the art visual effects department on The Abyss, and I'm like, what? And he also worked on The Hunt for Red October and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and apparently, right around the turn of the century, he got the chance to make two ghost movies. This flick... In 2001 and in 2002, we made Ghost, ghost Ship. Ship. It was neck and neck between 13 Ghosts and Ghost Ship for your, your selection this, this week. <laughs> Funny thing is, I saw them both in the theater, but I can't really remember anything about either one except that they both have outrageously awesome kill sequences. Uh-huh. There's one really amazing one in 13 Ghosts, and then there's one even more amazing one in Ghost Ship. And then there's the rest of the movie, and you could care less. Uh-huh. It's striking to me how a movie can succeed so much at something and then fail so miserably across the board at just about everything else it tries to do. Both of these movies did this. They both had really good production values. Mm-hmm. They both had kind of like all-star casts, yeah. right? But then just... Really strong, solid kind of like beginnings, if you will. Maybe the beginning of Ghost Ship is probably something. I don't want to talk too much about it for anybody that hasn't seen it, even though it is so old. Sure. That particular movie is just the first 10 minutes or so. (laughs) You're just like with your jaw on the ground. So, And in this one, maybe about 30 minutes in, there's a kill sequence that's so unbelievable. It's worth watching the movie, actually. Okay. Uh, no, no, it isn't. No, no I take that oh, back. I, th- I thought I- we were just doing right an endorsement in. right nope. here at the beginning. No, I can't do it. No, fuck it. No, there's no way I can even kid that this movie could be worth watching. Not even with that great kill. This flick is such a disaster, such a, a, a narrative disaster, but also a disaster in terms of tone. The actors, I mean, Tony Shalhoub, He's great. He's a good yeah. actor. Shannon Elizabeth back then was a star, right? Sure. You've got F. Murray Abraham and Matthew Lillard. I don't know what to say about him. 
can't. I think maybe drugs were involved is yeah. all I can say because he is so over the top mm-hmm. in this flick. So, so everybody is so over the top and they're acting in a way that's very, very light in many respects. So it feels like a rom-com. Mm. It's like the tone is just way off and then all of a sudden people are getting horrifically butchered. You know? <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, what happened here? You know, it starts out like this crazy action sequence with F. Murray Abraham coming into this car junkyard. His SWAT team of ghost hunters all show up with guns. I don't know, but what <laughs> <laughs> they're showing up with. And there's Matthew Lillard and he's this clairvoyant and they're going to trap a ghost. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the ghost just lays waste to most of them. And it's doing these horrific kill sequences. One guy gets pulled into a junked car. And when he gets pulled in, he just breaks in Mm -hmm. half. What the hell happened here? And then it just goes away. You see F. Murray Abraham's been killed and he's got like his, his neck is severed. And then it's Tony Shalhoub sitting in an idyllic home environment, looking out the window at his gorgeous wife. And the camera pans away. And they have this really interesting sequence the credits start rolling. It's like a Stephen Hopkins movie or like an old Aerosmith video or something like that. It's like David Fincher. You know what I mean? Like all this flash and, and sizzle and explosion and just like, wah, you know. And then then it cuts to this slow thing. And even the titles are different. The titles at the beginning were like fire and coming at you. And then the titles here are all very sedate and everything's quiet and we're panning this room that Tony Shalhoub's sitting in and you're seeing pictures of his family and it goes across and then the room slowly starts to become more decrepit as if the environment is breaking down and you hear the soundtrack you hear the worst acting it's like no no there's a fire no oh ah! and then the woman's screaming and the kids are crying and he's crying and there's stuff crashing and all the time you're just seeing the credits <laughs> and then you come back around to tony shalhoub and he's sitting by a a window in a dilapidated apartment it's supposed to be like the whole tragedy right. of his of the loss of his wife is off camera. Backstory received, right? It's interesting because it was a very clever way to do it. It's almost skilled, except for the audio. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, it sort of becomes like, it's almost like a sitcom in some ways, right? It feels very ill-considered. It's it's not, hey, honey, I'm home because the wife's dead. So I guess, <laughs> I guess it's not that. But I mean, Tony Shalhoub at home with his grown-ass daughter, who's Shannon Elizabeth. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, his daughter's what in her twenties? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not. Maybe she's a she's teenager, very grown. But she's ass, certainly that's old for sure. enough. His son's like maybe eleven, twelve. But for some reason, he has a nanny that's staying there and is always present. And she's an African American woman. Why is she here? First, I'm like, is this his girlfriend? But then she's later just referred to as the nanny and is really only utilized as comic relief, which is sort of an ugly sort of, oh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't age well at all, the way that they use her. And in fact, the very last thing in the movie is her walking through the wreckage of this place that they've been trapped in, walking through it and going, that's it. I've had it. That's it. I'm done. I quit. And then it slams into a rap song over oh, the credits. Wow. This all plays terribly <laughs> in 2020. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty weird. <laughs> I don't quite understand the family dynamic. I don't understand why there's a nanny there. I don't know why they're in such poverty. The big thing, apparently, that they're missing the most is that they only have one bathroom. Oh, boy. And oh, that's boy. like a big deal. And then this 
lawyer shows up at their house and he is there to tell them that Tony Shalhoub's uncle Cyrus has died and he has left them with this house. Pretty much without batting an eyelash, the entire crew, including the nanny, <laughs> pack up and head two hours out of the city to go see this thing pretty much immediately. Uh-huh. Like the lawyer is still in the same clothes, but apparently they've all just decided we're going to live here uh-huh. now. And I'm immediately like, what about your commute? <laughs> what about work? Like, what do you do? Like everybody's just, we're gone and we're going to this house. And they go and the house is made of like all this glass. And I mean, from a production design standpoint, it's incredible. <laughs> like you look at this thing. I'm like, it seems like production design is not the problem this not movie at all. has. No, not at all. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's kind of fun to look at. The trailer, oh, yeah. it is certainly stylized in its splashy new metal-y kind of way for sure. But even some of the... Images of these individual yeah. ghosts, they look a little bit like yeah. trading cards. You know, horror movie trading yes. cards where you have this this one yes. and that one. And the house is bizarre. Like, no house is that house. That's not a thing. No, it doesn't make sense. And narratively, it doesn't entirely make sense either. I mean, they trap these ghosts in these glass cases. And this house is sort of filled with these interlocking glass walls that sort of keep the ghosts hidden in a sort of zoo right. almost like a ghost zoo ghost zoo <laughs> that's it shut down the episode we're all done talking about 13 ghosts this is now a pitch meeting for ghost zoo here we go we have to get matt damon and it has to be called i bought a ghost i zoo. bought a ghost zoo uh-huh okay matt damon and ben affleck and ben affleck's actually one of the ghosts i'll fucking kill you that's not a threat. What? That's a fact. I'll fucking kill you. Fucking talk. The whole house is pretty much glass with like these Latin words etched into it and stuff. And it houses these ghosts. They don't think anything about the weird ass architecture of it. They're like, oh, wow, it's cool. They also don't uh-huh. think much of the fact that there's a power guy there who needs to get inside to check the power consumption of the house because it's shut off power for 570 families nearby or whatever. And it's Matthew uh-huh. Lillard. So you're like, wait, that's the guy from the beginning. What, what's he doing here? He's in a power company outfit. Sure. All hell more or less starts breaking loose immediately. Ghosts start popping up left and right. They have these things, these ghost glasses that they put on so they can see the ghosts. Right. Which is a tie-in to William Castle's original gimmick when he released 13 Ghosts. Yeah. He had this thing called Illusion-O. The glasses that you put on while you watch the movie that Correct. let you see the ghosts. I think if you took them off, you couldn't see them as well. Right. And if you look through blue, mm-hmm. you couldn't see them at all. But if you look through red, you could see them. Regardless, that was about the only clever thing that they did in this movie where they tied back to the gimmick. Otherwise, it pretty much yep. didn't have much to offer. And if I'm not wrong, I think in the original film, the characters in that movie, I think are also wearing glasses that, that help, help them see, see yeah, the yeah. ghosts so it's a, in the it's movie. A, it tied into yeah. the gimmick. The real problem with this movie isn't just that it narratively doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not even the tonal problems with the acting. It's the editing. (laughs) I don't know what they're trying to do. At one point, Matthew Lillard's character, the clairvoyant, says something like, these ghosts are trying to give me seizures every time I see them, or something like that. And I'm like, oh, that's what this movie is doing. These Mm. flashes are just, they never stop. Let's just say that there's 2,000 cuts in this movie. 1,500 of them are Uh not necessary. The sped up action and then the slowdown. And I can tell you right now, 
there isn't a scary moment in this entire movie. There is not a good jump scare. There are slow-mo sequences. Who the fuck thinks slow-mo works in horror? Where are you building any tension at all when somebody's moving in slow motion? You know, maybe you could extend some suspense, but you would have to build that first. There's never any suspense because you're constantly cutting in and out because people are taking the glasses off and putting them back on or whatever. They're falling off. Oh, God. The kills are, as I said, there's some of them that are pretty good. There's some interesting little, like, comebacks later on, you know, like, uh, not to blow the ending too much, but (laughs) if Murray Abraham shows up again after being dead at the beginning, and I'm like, oh my god, he's one of the ghosts, but no, he's not, it was all faked, and he's actually (laughs) there, and one of the protagonists that saved people earlier in the movie is actually on his side, and, like, loves him, or whatever, absolutely out of left field makes no sense whatsoever she gets killed (laughs) brilliantly i don't even understand mike what the plot exactly was like what cyrus f murray abraham is trying to do we're trying to capture the 13 ghosts right he has 12 he needs one more and then what right world power what the hell does this machine do exactly apparently it gives him Mm -hmm. control over time neat but i don't understand it basically the lion's gate logo is in the center of the house just turning and twisting endlessly and i kept (laughs) wishing that a new movie would start every time they show it (laughs) (laughs) there are two things that jumped out to me about 13 ghosts it's been forever since i've seen it i did not choose to rewatch it because this is film jitsu (laughs) fuck you don't fuck me but i remember two things the house you're talking about you hear all the time in horror movies when you walk up to the haunted house, that you should be like, oh, well, that's a haunted <laughs> right. house. I'm out of here, right? There has never been a more obvious yeah. trap yeah. of a house than this giant glass contraption full of runes and symbols and words etched into the glass. You're like, this is the house that you walk up, you're like, oh, this is a death trap. Yeah, We're right. leaving, exactly. right? That Eddie Murphy line. Well, sorry, baby, too bad. They we got to go, right? That's it. Eddie Murphy would never get stuck in the Amityville Horror House. You just get out. Yep, that's it. We're out of here. And the other thing is, boy, does this movie dispense with any notion that ghosts aren't just 100% real and hanging out all the time. There's no bumps in the night. There's no fading in and out. These are just the reality of this movie is like ghosts are fully formed creatures that anybody can see in their entirety just running around and looking mm. creepy. They almost look like the members of Slipknot are running around yes, that's this true. movie. <laughs> they look more like Cenobites to me. They do. Than they, they really do. do. Ghosts. They, yeah, I mean, there's one guy that's walking around. He's a big giant dude, and he looks like he has railroad nails jammed into his head. The one that gets the most airplay here by far is the naked woman ghost that I guess was a suicide victim right. or something like that. I'm pretty sure the woman who plays that particular character and has done nothing else since in mainstream cinema aside from that. But they definitely found the body they were looking for, for this ghost. There's a lot of ogling over that, I think. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's an interesting sequence too with Shannon Elizabeth, if we're talking about this kind of thing, Shannon Elizabeth, of course, very famous for the American pie, the first movie. She here is a much more sedate teenage type girl, you know, normal everyday girl. All she wants is a bathroom. (laughs) I don't know what this obsession was. So she goes in his bathroom and the whole time the <laughs> naked suicide girl is like hanging around with her. She's dipping her hands into the water and then pulls the water up onto her face and whatever else. And then 
Uh, the water turns mm-hmm. to blood and all this stuff. And it could have been an interesting, nope, nothing done with it. Later on, she gets attacked by another ghost with sharp nails that's clawing at her. And they claw at Shannon Elizabeth's shirt and it gets torn open. And I'm fairly certain that later on that shirt has somehow healed itself. I think she had like a no nudity clause or something after doing the American Pie thing. <laughs> the thing that this movie does that really, really pushes the envelope is the fact that it tries to take itself seriously in its third act. And all of a sudden, it really, mm-hmm. it strives for this. The 13 Ghost is really going to be Tony Shalhoub and he's going to like sacrifice himself for his family and then that way, oh, you know, and all these I things see. have to happen <laughs> and you take it real seriously. And one of the 12 ghosts in the house is his dead wife. Okay, all right, well, this oh. is it. And there is a moment where Tony Shalhoub sheds what I would call the perfect tear. Oh, you sons of bitches. A Tony so tear. So more than anything I think I'm most angry about is the waste of poor Tony Shalhoub's perfect tear in this thing, uh-huh. in this gutter <laughs> trash movie. It just doesn't deserve Tony's tear. We're in the middle of the machine, powered by the dead. Maybe this is what comes out of Film Jitsu covering 13 Ghosts. I'm glad you had a terrible time with it. That's the whole point, right? But this is a season of celebration. We want to have a good time. Maybe my hope for this is that it turns some of our listeners on to the William Castle original. Yeah, I would definitely recommend the original 13 Ghosts. It's a far superior story. And while the the acting is wooden, it's more interesting and more engaging to watch. So thanks for not assigning me that. Thanks for assigning me this instead. I want everybody to have a good time in October. Yes, thank you. you. Thank you very much. You are dog food. I hope that I just (laughs) hope I hope that uh, someone confuses you. A a very hungry stray confuses you for a a can of Alpo and just dines on your skull from making me watch this. (laughs) It's werewolf season. They're everywhere right now. This was this was a pile. This was really a pile. Give me a fucking headache watching it there's a there's there's a lot in this movie to give you a headache from a pretty rough to sit down and listen to soundtrack to just a constant 90 minutes of strobe lights strobe lights i'm glad i didn't hurt (laughs) you glad you didn't hurt me i still want dogs to eat your skull Well, Jay, if dogs don't eat my skull (laughs) before we get to this part of the show it is now time to do our bottom five ghosts i have a list that i had a little fun with i'm sure that i could probably get into here we go the whole double negative the worst ghost the scariest (laughs) ghost for me i went with dumb ghosts oh there's just some dumb ghost bullshit in a lot of movies oh and so i went that great how did you formulate your list oh man i tell you i love ghost movies so this was really tough for me i do too because when people find fault with movies like the amityville horror I personally find myself super primed for a good scary time. Yeah. Most paranormal flicks are pretty much my jam. But as you said, every once in a while, there's something even in a movie that I might like that makes me roll my eyes to the back of my skull. That's what I tried to find was ghosts that are just plain dumb or ill rendered. So very, very similar to yours. So so what's your number five? Well, I decided to have a little bit of fun with my number five and... For me, the number five is not a character in the movie, but instead it is the stupid as hell ghost rumor from Three Men and a Baby. (laughs) That's so good. Dude. That old 
Hollywood legend that there's a ghost <laughs> in the background yeah. of a scene with three men and a baby, which, of course, if you watch it, it is very clearly a cardboard cutout yeah, but, that is just okay. left on the set. There's nothing about this Hold that on looks a second. like now, a ghost. Now, wait, wait, wait. That scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. When I first heard about it, and then I saw it myself on a VHS copy of it. To remember, this is VHS. It's quality that looks even uh-huh. shittier than Zoom. Yeah. You see something so quickly when it passes by and it's behind like a curtain. Yeah. It doesn't make sense why it's there. It turns out it's a cutout of, I think, Ted Danson's character in the movie. That's right. From a dropped plot that didn't make it into the final cut. It unnerves, honestly. That quick glance unnerves. Not for you. (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you. I watched it today as a reminder. I watched it on YouTube. And I don't know, maybe we are just talking in advance. Advances in in technology. Yeah, right. Display quality. But when I watched it, that thing's not really behind a curtain. It's sort of in between some curtains. There's not a ghostly thing about it. If you were able to pause your VHS tape, which we've all seen (laughs) Fast Times at Ridgemont High, so I know that we can pause our VHS tapes. You can very clearly see that this is just like a grinning cardboard cutout and there's nothing scary about it at all. For me, it's the whole legend, the urban legend about the ghost. And this goes along, of course, with the person that hung themselves on the set of The Wizard of Oz. And the funny thing here is we get into Halloween and we talk about scary movies and I love scary movies and I love ghost movies and, and a good scary haunt, like you said. The funny thing about me is that as a person... I'm kind of the most skeptical person around. I believe 0% in the existence of actual ghosts, but I love a good ghost story. I know how to have a good time with a ghost story. So I think my number five is just being like, there's no fucking ghost in three men and a baby. It's a cardboard cutout for Christ's I love it. I still think that it's great. But the best thing about everything that you said was that you evoked the Phoebe Cates doctrine. So I think that, you know, that <laughs> yes. now that we've got that out in the open, we can, we can continue. Well, my number five is Grandma from Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. Now, look, I mm. love this movie so much. It's unbelievably wacky. And you've got a real good continuation of the story of the Freelings, specifically the parents. Unfortunately, that tragedy with the eldest daughter who was in real life murdered Mm -hmm. after the production of the first movie. They don't even discuss her. Like, she never existed, which is interesting. Off to college, maybe something like that, but they don't even bother. But they keep the family unit mostly intact. They keep the sense of humor mostly intact. And they go full-on fucking bananas with the visual effects and the story. And at one point, they jump into a mystical fire and end up on the other side to fight this tree Uh demon that took Carol Ann and it's always poor Carol Ann, right? And it's Kane, that creepy, creepy guy, Kane, right? Obviously I have no quibbles with Kane as a ghost. I thought he was scary, terrifying. He shortly died after the production of that movie. That honestly, when you talk about genuine chills, I know Kane Kane. is truly scary. I almost put him on my list because he might be the only ghost in cinema that even as a 42 year old man still gets genuinely scares me it's the performance it's the fact that he was himself um he had cancer i believe and he was nearing yeah death. julian beck was very sick when he made the movie but he, he boy he evokes so much with that timber you know the way that he's oh the yeah. singing it's the singing it's the singing all right i'll sing your song 
till your mom comes back. God is here. Is holy. Oof. Oof, man. Anyway, I don't have any quibbles with Julian Beck. I have no quibbles with Kane. What I do have quibbles with is after defeating Kane on the other side, Carol Ann gets lost and falls into the bright light. And everybody's sad and everybody's terrible. And I know we're talking about another person that has died, so that's kind of terrible. But she is delivered back to her family by the grandmother that died earlier in the film. And oh, dear, Mm -hmm. no. Just no. (laughs) Like, I mean, this movie hits a lot of cool notes for me. But that one note, ghost grandma throwing the little girl back to her family on the other side. Uh, a solid number five on my list of bottom fives. A bridge too far. <laughs> a bridge too far. <laughs> That's a good pick. I'm glad that we got Poltergeist onto the bottom five somehow because I find that difficult to do. You and I love them both. both love yeah. both of those. Really, all three of those. I mean, that third one's bananas. That didn't happen. That's a Mandela effect. You think that there's a Poltergeist three? There isn't. It doesn't exist. <laughs> my number four is from a 1996 movie directed by Peter Jackson. Of course, I'm talking about a film I love, The Frighteners. Yeah, you've had this in a, on a bottom five before, I think. I might have found ways to get The Frighteners here in other lists. And it's funny because it's a movie I really, really love. But in this one, I'm going with Jake Busey's <laughs> Johnny Bartlett. Because you know what I don't need? I don't need a ghost to also be a mass shooter. Yeah. yeah, The whole thing with this guy is he's a mass killer who dies and then he comes back from the grave looking to increase his numbers. (sighs) And it really, the problem, why it's on my list is because this element of the story is so dark and so upsetting. And okay, it was 1996. We hadn't experienced Columbine yet. You know, mass shootings weren't really in the zeitgeist the way that they are now. But we have this fun, silly Michael J. Fox comedy. It's a movie that works for me a lot as a comedy. It looks great in a way that only Peter Jackson can sometimes put those visuals up. Everything about this movie works. And then it takes this Mm, hard, mm -hmm. dark turn that as a kid in the theater watching it, I was like, whoa. Wait, Mm -hmm. what's happening here? And it's one thing when these ghostly, almost ring wraith looking creature is flying around the the screen and reaching into people's chest with his ghost hand and literally squeezing their hearts. Okay, that's scary and pretty cool. That was working for me. But then when it's like big tooth Jake (laughs) Busey, you know, Gary Busey (laughs) 2.0, just shouting and yelling at the screen and running around with shotguns and stuff. Terrifying. No, no. It it actually, in some ways, ruins a movie that I think was pretty perfect up until this way over the top and extremely dark and violent killer in the movie. We get that amazing Jeffrey Combs character with all the tattoos and the weirdness. Even that's not too much for me. I think that's a part of the Peter Jackson bizarreness that makes me love his horror films but the johnny bartlett character mm -mm, Mm. nope not doing it and so that makes a number four for me that's a solid one yeah i could see that it's another thing where the tone it's a tonal shift that doesn't entirely work and so i get i get where you're coming from with it well my number four this is weird because this ghost is actually featured in a couple different movies 
But it's the treatment in one of the movies that I really didn't like because my expectations were so built up by another one. And that's Velik, the, the demon nun from The Nun. Oh, all right. Specifically. So it's an odd choice because I did like The Conjuring 2. And that's where Velik first shows up. Where does she show up? Mm-hmm. The Amityville Horror House, right? So, I mean, I've been, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah. because I'm a sucker for like ghosts that manifest through media or through art or something like that, recordings, things like that. I love it mm. when, you know, Ed Warren is just painting and he's, and he paints Valak, you know, and, and then and you get that painting that mm-hmm. sets you up for a great jump scare further on in Conjuring 2. Now, I don't really think that Conjuring 2, Conjuring 2 really does go in a ton of different directions. And it, and it sort of yeah. suffers. It's almost like a superhero movie, right? That that has too many villains in it. And so I do think it kind mm-hmm. of falls apart mm-hmm. a bit at the end. And one of the reasons it falls apart is that it has this whole plot line with Valak and how that ties in. So I was kind of excited to see The Nun get its own treatment in, you know, a full-length treatment. And in sure. 2018, we got The Nun, and it was enormously successful and it's enormously dull, unbelievably <laughs> dull with lots of talking, very few scares. It's not at all the quote unquote origin story for this supervillain that I really would have liked to have seen. It's just this very lethargic pace. And so while I like Valak, it earns a place because it got its own full story was put into the spotlight. Instead, the spotlight just showed a pile of crap. That's what I got <laughs> for my number four. Yeah, those Conjuring movies, there's no way around mm-hmm. it. They're scary. Oh, yeah. they, they are very effective yep. at frightening you. And, not and that one. I haven't seen <laughs> The not, Nun. You just fell asleep during it. <laughs> I was going to say, I think yeah. I started The Nun and fell yeah. asleep and never yeah. went back to The Nun. Yep. You got me there. My next pick, Jason, is going to be a little feather ruffly, hmm. but hear me out. Okay. This is one of those times where I can just hear... Twitter being like, well, actually, Mm. so I don't know. But my number three pick is a ghost from a much beloved 1988 Tim Burton film. Oh, come on. I'm going with Beetlejuice. What the fuck? Beetlejuice is a ghost, right? Yeah, but you're saying that that he's dumb, that he sucks? No, I'm saying that he's a bottom five ghost because Beetlejuice is a fucking asshole. Okay, fair. (laughs) Beetlejuice is the villain of the movie. But he's awesome. But he's not awesome. He's like, he's so fun. It's such it's a great so performance. It, I mean, yeah. Michael Keaton is so great. You know, that limited screen time. So, of course, yeah, I'm being sure. a little tongue-in-cheek here. But as far as ghosts go, he's not scary. He's not whatever. He's just an asshole to these <laughs> poor people the whole time. He's, he's a pedophile. If we're being honest about it, he's a pedophile, right? He's sexually assaulting Gina Davis in the movie a time or two you know he's getting handsy Mm. with her he's just like Mm. everything about Beetlejuice and I get Mm. it that's the point but I was like boy Beetlejuice is such an asshole and this is you know I'm saying this is a bottom five because that's what he's supposed to be right it's like if anything this is my backhanded compliment that's exactly what he's supposed to be I think that this is sort of my award for mission accomplished for Michael Keaton and, and Tim Burton because in such a short amount of time, with such little screen time, <laughs> the impact that the character has had. Yeah. People oh, love yeah. this character. People love this movie. Of course, he only has, what is it, like 12 combined minutes of actual <laughs> yeah. screen time or whatever it is. That was 1988. We're still talking about it. Oh, yeah. And the reason for that is because Beetlejuice is such a memorable <laughs> asshole. It doesn't take a lot to be an asshole. I know this personally. 
But to be such an asshole that 30 <laughs> years later, everybody remembers what an yeah. asshole you are, that's a bottom five to me. That's no, it. No, it's quality. The way you describe it actually works. That does make sense. Yeah. I'm not here to make sense. <laughs> you literally went with a ghost that's shitty. That's shitty. So, right. Yeah, a it. shitty yeah. ghost. Well, yeah. uh, while we're on the topic of shitty ghosts, plural, I'm going with the Overlook Hotel's gaggle of ghosts. From Dr. Sleep Mm. in 2019. Now, let me just say this straight off, Uh all right? I really appreciate the amazing balancing act that Mike Flanagan pulls off with Dr. Sleep, where he both Uh wrote and directed a sequel to Kubrick's The Shining while honoring the source material of two of King's books, The Shining and Dr. Sleep. I mean, the courage, I would even say the audacity to pull something like that off is staggering. And for almost the mm-hmm. entire running time of Dr. Sleep, I feel like Mike Flanagan manages to thread the needle, uh-huh. even though it's delicious poetic justice. At the end of the film, the comeuppance of uh, Rebecca Ferguson's Rose the Hat that she receives uh-huh. from the denizens of the Overlook Hotel, it just comes off as like goofy fan service. And it turns these like uh-huh. legitimately terrifying apparitions from Kubrick's original movie into like this weird group of offbeat supervillains that just dole out these just desserts to the villain of of Dr. Sleep, Mm -hmm. Rose the Hat. For me, turning them so cartoony at the end of that movie just ruins a lot of, for both movies. Mm -hmm. I do think that logically he stuck the landing. Sure. It came off as fan service. Yeah. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if the girls come back? It wouldn't be cool if the... In a way that the movie managed not to do for most of the time. And man... Correct. You would be hard-pressed to find a film that had a deck stacked against it... Totally. ...more than Doctor Sleep, for all the reasons that you said. Nothing about that movie should work. And the fact that with so much built-in trepidation and hostility, in some cases, to that movie... The fact that audiences, I think, by and large, did yeah. kind of go for it is amazing. It is. And then <laughs> the confidence that was that film had, it was like this momentary lapse in the sure, steady hand of right. crafting the there's film. A, there's a moment in Ready Player One where the characters enter into The Shining. Mm. And for me, it worked brilliantly yep. until it went too far. It turned into Ready Player One, yeah. <laughs> well, I still like Ready Player One a lot, but that's neither here nor there. I think that there's just always this temptation to overdo it, you know? And and I think that that's what happened with, mm. with the ghosts at the Overlook Hotel at the end of the Doctor Sleep. So that made my number three. My number two is not a problem of overdoing it, but maybe a problem mm. of underdoing it. Because, and I can't believe that I'm about to, in a season of Halloween where I want to celebrate the spooky and the great masters and the thing I love... That I make speak disparagingly of a John Carpenter film. But if you're going to make a movie called Ghosts of Mars, I want there to be ghosts on Mars. Yeah, man. (laughs) I I don't even know. I need ghosts on Mars. Were they mutants? They were like some leftover society on Mars. They could kind of possess you. But they all looked like... Yes. Professional wrestlers. <laughs> the character design was so... They all look like Morbius did in that terrible Marvel movie. <laughs> they look like space vampires. Yeah, I get it. The film is trying to be kind of this space right. western 
horror. It's a lot. I can't believe it's Halloween time and I'm saying bad things about a John Carpenter movie. Who who the fuck do I think I am? It's a terrible movie. It it's really is. It's dreadful. So here I am. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to watch a movie about ghosts right. on Mars. And not for nothing. Look, just as an aside, there's like nine black people living on, on Mars. One of them is Ice Cube. And guess what? They've put him in jail. Like, fucking <laughs> come on, John, for Christ's sakes. At least Pamela Greer was was free. <laughs> Everything about this movie is a shit show. Boy, the cast of that movie, right? Like, they got Pam Greer, okay, but then Natasha Henstridge, Ice Cube. You know, we're not necessarily talking heavy hitters <laughs> here, so there is a lot to dislike about that movie. For me, a bottom five ghost yeah. is a ghost on Mars that's not a ghost on Mars. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but is instead a really bad Halloween costume on Mars. 100% perfect selection. It was the return of the Living Dead Part 3 zombie girl mm. in, like, triplicate some of the men. <laughs> that was really all yep. it was. So. Yep. Well, mine is going to be contentious, my number two. Oh, okay. And... It is a sticking point in a non-horror movie. So we're, here we are talking about all these horror movies. Oh. I'm going to go with a movie that I love. I think it's a very good movie. It's a terrific movie. But it has this one very weird plot hole that I could never get past. And as a result, mm. it sort of sinks the movie a little in my estimation. And this is Field of Dreams from 1989. Okay. Oh, We all, all right. know that Terrence Mann, how do you make gruff warm, you know, but but James Earl Jones manages uh-huh. to do that. So we all know that he's appears alive, but there's very little interaction with him by any characters other than Kevin Costner's character, Ray Kinsella, the lead. Right. And right. he is seen by others, but then again, Ray sees ghosts, right? Others, others see ghosts mm-hmm. in the movie. So by the end of the movie, it seems like man is certainly a ghost or has died or something because he's allowed to go into the cornfield with all of the ghost players. Mm-hmm. I would just love to know what Phil Alden Robinson thinks about this. Like, is he a ghost? Is he not yeah. a ghost? Because for me, there's also this bit of nonsensical time travel in the middle of the movie where Ray just goes to 1972. And so I'm like, okay, uh-huh. is he imagining this? Is the whole thing imagined? <laughs> is it real? Was Terrence Mann imagined? Or is he a ghost that he took to the field so that he could make amends? Ultimately, if Terrence is a ghost, then it's kind of like a terrible version of Bruce Willis in The Sixth Sense. Uh-huh. Field of Dreams kind of becomes this botched bit of storytelling due to this inconsistency, which man is treated like a human. What ghost still has an apartment? When I die, I better not still have to pay rent. No way. Forget that. It's one of those movies you don't think too much about, right? Like while you're watching it. And then if you stop sure. and think about it, it's like, wait, was was he was he a goat? Oh, shit. <laughs> so you take this perfectly warm, gentle, sweet, great cinematic exercise. You get really pissed off. With <laughs> <it>. <laughs> uh, you know, very few people in my world could manage to get genuinely pissed off at Field of Dreams. One of the things I love most about you is that, yep, you're that yeah, guy. It doesn't surprise you in the least. My favorite part of this movie is when James Earl Jones is behind the curtains in Ted Danson's apartment. That's my favorite part. Honestly, I didn't really think we'd be talking about Field of Dreams on our Halloween episode. You never cease to surprise me. That's a great pick. It really is. Well, I think I'm at my number one. Yeah. And I'm kind of comfortable saying... It's going to be the same as mine. There might be an objective 
number one bottom five mm-hmm. ghost mm-hmm. in movies. I hadn't thought about it until we started recording, but as I consider my list, who do I think I am? Because let's talk about some of the directors that I've discussed <laughs> here today. Tim Burton, Peter Jackson, oh, geez. John Carpenter. Good heavens. And now I'm going to reference a movie directed by Sidney Poitier. <laughs> oh, Jesus, really? Yeah, I sure am. But I feel like we can all agree there's no worse ghost than Ghost oh, Dad. Oh, Jesus. Because. My God. Bill boy, Cosby. Oh <laughs> Bill Cosby is going to be my bottom five mm-hmm. anything forever. So when there's a movie as bad as Ghost Dad with a guy as bad as Bill Cosby, I'm pretty comfortable saying that Ghost Dad is the worst dad in all of movies. <laughs> I'm I'm not even sure he was a ghost, technically. He dies in a car accident, and now he's obsessed with, I don't know, trying to, like, secure finances <laughs> for his kids now that he's dead. So he's, like, still trying to make a buck in the afterlife. And, you know, along the way, discovers how much he missed as a dad. But it's Bill Cosby as a ghost. So fuck that guy. Sorry, Sidney Poitier, but that's my number one. Wow, it's re- it's regarding Henry, except where he dies instead. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Yep. I want my Bill Cosby's to stay dead, if that's okay with everybody. So that's number one for me, guys. Oh, I am so surprised. Ghost Dad. Great choice. I, I don't think I ever watched Ghost Dad. I did watch my number one, and I thought for sure it was going to be the same as yours. Okay. Somehow it's not, and I can't believe it. And that is Hugh Crane <laughs> and the Ghost Cherubs from The Fucking Haunting from 1999. So, like, let's just, like, like, Robert Wise created his adaptation of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, one of the most memorable ghost stories ever to be set to film. His The Haunting, Absolutely. it set the gold standard great, for great this balance of ghostly elements and psychology, right? And it's just, yep. the character psychology is so important, so crucial. So any lessons to be gleaned from the original's mastery are just ruthlessly ignored with Janda Bond's graceless mm-hmm. The Haunting. Just horrible. Mm-hmm. And did you know that this movie started as a collaboration between Steven Spielberg and Stephen I King. Not. Yeah, they wanted to what they happened? went they said the best ghost story there is is Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. We're going to go ahead and we're going to adapt that. They couldn't agree, so they broke off. King went and actually took a lot of his elements and turned it into Rose Red and mm-hmm. Spielberg went off, hired another writer who was like a first-time screenwriter and came up with this thing and then was like doing some weird switching of the chessboard around with like what he was going to direct and what he was going to produce. And he wasn't going to direct minority report, but he ended up directing it. So he gave DeBont mm-hmm. the haunting. DeBont looked at it and went, well, I'm not really interested in this script. I want to do something that's more based on the book. And this is what he came up with. It just, it devolved into this <laughs> loud and shallow and ultimately really goofy story about this angry child hating ghost that manifests in a horrific swirl of bad CGI that yells at Lily oh, Taylor boy. and decapitates Owen Wilson, which was very unexpected and very, very <laughs> yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah. But it's a standout moment in a real bad flip. Absolutely. But this this the ghost was so laughably rendered and Lily Taylor somehow wins out and banishes the ghost into like a bronze door because mm-hmm. she's not afraid of him. 
She saves the children and all that. Correct. Right. I love ghosts. And I love Catherine Zeta-Jones. But I cannot love these ghosts with Catherine Zeta-Jones. Not to mention the way that one of the things that was a little revolutionary about Jackson's book is, you know, it's a pretty important waypoint in queer horror, right? And including those kind of elements. And while that wasn't completely lost in this movie, no, it certainly nice. wasn't handled with a whole hell of a lot of dignity. No, not at all. <laughs> like the rest of the movie, it was heavy-handed and kind of gross. It was more interested in cacophony than characters. Mm. But you know what? An option for a little bit of redemption for Flanagan, and you were talking about yeah, yeah. Um, Dr. Sleep, yep. because, of course, Mike Flanagan would go on to do The Haunting of Hill House. The Haunting yeah. of Hill House. Netflix, and, and yeah. Do it in his own Jesus. way and really make it something Hell yeah. remarkable and oh, interesting yeah. and, and really build on the ideas sure. that Shirley Jackson had. I made the mistake one time of uh, while working overnight in an old Victorian mm. home by myself mm. all night long, listening to Shirley Jackson's book uh, as an audiobook in my headphones nope. and managing to terrify <laughs> myself unbelievably in the middle of the night in a house that I couldn't leave. Oh my God. <laughs> it was really effective. Whoa. So it's such a good story. Again, Maybe like 13 Ghosts, uh, we can succeed in not driving people <laughs> to these terrible movies, but check out their source material. Yeah, absolutely. I hope our listeners out there have their own favorite bad ghosts, bottom five ghosts. I don't know, favorite ghosts, <laughs> who gives a shit? I would love to hear from them. Yeah. If you're listening at home and, and you want to share your favorite ghost or your least favorite ghost or tell me why I'm an idiot, then... Please go ahead, <laughs> drop us a line, hit us up at Mike at filmjitsu.net, Jay at filmjitsu.net, find us on Twitter, hit us up on the socials, shame us publicly, whatever it is we want to hear from you. I like how you just go, really talk about your ghost, tell me I'm an idiot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, in the absence of We Bought a Ghost Zoo, I think we have to find something else to recommend at the end of this. After talking about all these uh, terrible ghost movies that we've seen, after talking about 13 Ghosts, which I'm still having flashbacks and, and nerve reactions to, Mike, bring us to the promised land. See us through the purgatory so that we may now be free of this mortal coil. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that you're going to recommend? Is it horror? It is. It has awesome. to be. Right. Because it's, it's Halloween, Halloween. So we want to recommend our scary movies. Awesome. I feel a lot of pressure at a time <laughs> like this because when you're put on the spot to recommend a scary movie, it always feels like you better not get this wrong. For me, there is no way to get this more right than with the movie I'm recommending tonight. And I wanted to stay in the vein of, of a ghost movie because we, <laughs> we went with ghosts for the episode. So I wanted to find a good scary yeah. ghost story. And for me, there is almost perhaps none better than The Changeling. Hmm. George C. Scott, Trish Vandeveer, and a movie that I love because it's a film from a time when you could make a scary movie without a thousand strobe lights. Jay, just a ball. A ball. I was going to say a ball bouncing. The stairs, right? Yep. There's so much to love about this film because it's a capital F Mm. film. It's a movie that takes the craft of movie making seriously. It doesn't kind of punch down to its subject matter. So what this is about, of course, is George C. Scott is a, I think Mm -hmm. a composer whose family is killed tragically and he moves into this big house to kind of, you know, 
drown his sorrows in isolation and ostensibly to work on his music. And strange and creepy things start happening in the house. Things that we think must be tied in with the family. It gets a little bit more complicated than that in a way that one of these great movies of the era can sometimes do. You know, Peter Madoc's camera is doing some really, really great stuff. And I love it. I just, I love everything about it. And uh, there's just a lot to like. There's so many kind of heavy hitters Mm. in this movie taking it seriously. I think George C. Scott was pretty well into the drink Mm. at this point Mm. in his career. He's just so larger than life as this character. He's big. He's loud. He's Mm. angry. He's heartbroken. It's just an incredible performance by George C. Scott. That alone is enough to make me recommend the movie. But for me, it is also filled with just enough really genuine, clever, creep-out moments that everything about this movie works for me. I love wow. it. That is a that's a huge recommendation. It's a, not a light one, mm. but this is like, motherfucker's yeah. got to watch yep. this movie. And it's funny because- You got to watch I this one. Think, uh, th- that movie is a pair with Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now. Like Those are two movies that I see mm. kind of- side by side and for me i've always been it's almost like the beatles and the rolling stones nicholas rogue sure. is the rolling yeah. stones yeah, yeah and the beatles would be peter midax the changeling and i have way more rolling stones in this case just always yeah. resonated more with me plus i'm more of a donald sutherland guy than a george c scott guy so you know that might be it my recommendation for this halloween episode also is a ghost movie and this one is one that combines horror and ghosts along with our ever-growing concerns of, around technology taking over our humanity. And, and it's this movie Pulse, or Cairo, um, which is a, mm. a 2001 film from Japanese director Kiyoshi Kurosawa. This thing is a patience tester, but it pays off with these rich ideas about loneliness and our isolation in modern society due to our ever-growing dependence on technology. That it's set at the turn of the century only furthers the sense of dread it carries about the future of its characters and society as a whole. The basic premise of the film is that ghosts are encroaching on the world of the living via the internet. And those that interact mm-hmm. with these ghosts themselves become these ashen shadows that are left behind on walls and floors. The plot okay. meanders with these little spikes of terror until the characters finally meet at what feels like the beginning of the end of the world as more and more people huh. succumb to this death of loneliness. Uh, It is an excellent movie. It's extremely unique in terms of this winding narrative, but it pays off nicely and it'll leave you thinking about it long after the end credits roll. So that's Pulse from 2001. Jason, it's your favorite time in the show. Hell yeah. That period where you get to tell me what movie I have to watch next week is payback for third third one three in ghosts, I guess. So Payback so go is, ahead. is gonna hurt. It's, it, I'm telling you right now. Okay, my friend. It's gonna hurt. So listen. Okay. I like a lot of Italian things, right? I like I like calamari. Uh-huh. I like pizza, Monica uh-huh. Bellucci. But one thing uh-huh. I have to admit to not totally loving is Italian cinema. I know. Okay. So okay. sure. There's a Sergio Leone picture here or there that I'd watch again. And 
I do like Dario Argento. He has some some good work, you know. Sure, yeah. And, and while I I do films, yeah. I absolutely adore Lamberto Bava's Demons. I'd be just as likely uh-huh. to watch that again as I would Kevin Tenney's Night of the Demons, made here in the good old U.S. of A. Uh-huh. And let's be real for a minute. Some of the plots, the production values, and <laughs> the acting featured in classic mm-hmm. Italian cinema is anything but classic. Look, I made space mm-hmm. in my schedule. I still will make space in my schedule for Luca Guadagnino. And I'd be a fool to trifle with Antonioni or, you know, f- f- fucking Fellini, yeah. you know, like, but most, but right, most yeah, the masters, of their work sure. is like a one and done thing for me. It's something to be appreciated, cataloged, and not necessarily revisited. Alas, there is one <laughs> dude who's always lauded as a true hero of Italian cinema. He's revered as a god among horror hounds. And cherish so much that he is actually called the godfather of gore. That man is Lucio Fulci, best known for 1979 Zombie and 1980 City of the Walking Dead. I think his movies are tripe. Uh (laughs) And so for our episode next week, Mike, I'm hitting you with one of Fulci's most love it or hate it affairs. 1981's The Beyond. Oh, how I hope... You agree with me and thus do not enjoy more than five minutes of its merciful 87-minute running time. Because if you're anything like me, this will be way beyond a test of your patience. Boy, you packed a lot in that setup, and that's great. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Yeah, I mean Fulci, right? That you're right. The it's sort of unheard of in horror circles right, to say a exactly, bad word about right. the Godfather, right? You're not allowed to do yeah, that. I, just I was sort of wondering of if we were going to be going down the giallo yeah. pathway yeah. and and all that kind of stuff. And the Italians love to have actual depictions mm-hmm. of like unsimulated intercourse in their films, <laughs> uh, you know, all that kind. Of, so I was not <laughs> sure where you were going with this. So here's the cool thing. As much as I love zombie and have seen a lot of Fulci, I have not yeah. watched the beyond. So this is going to be a first time viewing for me, which has me excited. But of course I know this is film jitsu. So I'm fairly concerned about what you're getting me up to. So. <laughs> well, you might have a different opinion. Most horror fans really like the beyond. I found it absolutely okay. painful to watch. And I hope you do too. <laughs> I hope I do too. So, That begs the question, what is our bottom five list? So, Mike, what I want to do as a bottom five for this one is bottom five gore effects. So, effects that absolutely pull you right out of the movie. (laughs) Okay. That's what I want to see because once you watch The Beyond, I think you'll understand. This is a very loaded thing, right? Some people love gore effects and the the worse they are the better for some people so you're not looking for the goriest stuff nope we're looking for like the poorly conceived that's correct not well done yep like that is clearly a mannequin head kind of thing that kind of thing but i will allow i will allow bad cg okay all right yep Gore effects. All right. I think in the spirit of the master i'll try to avoid that if i can go practical the whole way all right. Yeah, that's going to be fun. We want to keep things a little slimy around here at Film Jitsu. That sounds fun. I'm looking forward to it. I think maybe more than I will be this time next week. I This is one of the things I've come to learn about you is that when you give me a movie that I'm enthusiastic <laughs> to catch up with, sometimes I forget that you gave it to me for a damn good reason. So ugh, we'll see. But I'm certainly up to the challenge. So I'm hoping that all of our listeners will come back and join us next week when I will be watching Lucio Fulci's 
the beyond. But until then, I've been Mike. And I have been Jay. Keep your blood on the inside. Dog food. <laughs> you are dog food. <laughs>